Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up, as our regular food contributor Erica Drum gave Veganuary a go, I'll be asking how she got on and we'll be getting some expert advice from plant based nutritionist and author Holly White. Fiona Brennan will be answering a listener question about friends that don't seem to care and MEP Frances Fitzgerald on her work on domestic violence and her disappointment with this week's directive news. And as she prepares to step away from life at the European Parliament, I'll be asking how she maintains her own health and well-being. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I've had a good week. It's definitely back in full flight, back to legging it around, pulling apart wardrobes for sports kits and brownies uniforms, chasing my tail all week. But do you know what? I really have remained grateful through it all. I rushed my daughter down to the aforementioned brownies one night and was legging it back up to tidy up after dinner or whatever I was doing and I was driving away in a fluster and I don't mean to be holier than thou. I don't get it right all the time. There are meltdowns, believe me. But I actually just said to myself, how lucky am I that I get to drive down into our village and wave my daughter off into the wholesomeness that is brownies. So yes, I've been remaining grateful through the madness. And I had less work engagements this week. So I got to the to-do list for 2024 a little, cleared out, rearranged my office. And I have to say, I've been loving the early mornings being back. My meditations are back, the winter walks to school. It just means that you're starting the day ticking boxes of things for me that fill me up. And that weather... Those skies this week, a stunning backdrop to the chasing of the tail. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, our regular food contributor, Erica Drum, went on a mission this month and made it veganuary. She joins me in studio now alongside plant-based nutritionist and author Holly White. Well, you're both very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Erica, I'll start with you. Why did you want to do this? A few different reasons, Claire. I think I fall back on dairy produce quite a lot and not just meat, but things like butter and cheese to enhance flavour, but also for myself personally as a snacking situation. And I kind of wanted to challenge myself to cook more plant based, but to encourage flavours from other areas, to heighten my senses with different things. And um, it was really just a challenge for myself, or it is a challenge, we're still in it, to, I don't want to say eat a healthier life, because I I do eat quite healthy, and health for me is about balance. But um, this is really just to, yeah, give myself some more plant-based recipes in my repertoire to to give to others. So what, we're three weeks in, Mm. how have you been getting on? A mixed bag, I'd say. I've been getting on well. I've been finding it hard at times. And like, I think if I'm finding it hard um, as a chef and someone who, you know, enjoys cooking and being in the kitchen and buying, I I put my money, I've I've often said this on the show, you know, I don't buy fancy handbags. My money goes on my my food and my produce that I like to get. So um, I think it's, it's a matter of being quite organised and jumping into, I would not recommend Veganuary actually to the average person, every everyday, normal, you know, people who just cook at home, um, weekly meals or whatever, or don't enjoy cooking. I just would not recommend to go in all in for a month. It's not sustainable. And we often talk about sustainability here in terms of lifestyle. I found myself hungry quite a lot, which is my fault. It's not 
plant-based or vegan veganism's fault. It's mine from not being organised. And there is definitely so much food out there that can fill you, but you just have to be a little bit more aware and have people like Holly or resources that she provides in your life to refer to. I've enjoyed it though. Like I've enjoyed creating gorgeous things and being proud of myself that... And I'm feeding them to people without saying anything. And then they're like, this is delicious. Like my first few days I was in Dave's family's house down in, in the country. And I actually cooked for, I think there's about 10 or 12 of us for three days because I needed to make vegan food for myself. So I was cooking, you know, a chickpea and potato curry or a lentil soup or whatever it was. And I just fed everyone. I said, dinner's inside if you want, but said nothing. And especially Dave's dad, I was like so delighted that he loved everything. And, you know, not a mention of the fact that this happened to be vegan or plant-based. It's number one delicious. And Holly will tell you she's the same as well. Number one, tasty flavour. Let's not, you know, let's stop labelling things kind of negatively, I do think. Veganism gets a little bit of a negative connotation to it. Um and it shouldn't. It should just be about taste and flavour and deliciousness. Well, let's bring you in then, Holly. Do you agree with that? Were you happy? I thought it got a bit of a rebrand. I think plant-based sounds a lot less <sighs> triggering for people than veganism, which it shouldn't be. But you're right, it gets a bad rap. Do you find that? I think for me, typically, I would associate the word veganism. And again, maybe this is me being sort of a bit stereotypical, but with argument. And I think veganism in itself is an all-encompassing lifestyle. So say, for example, the, um, someone who would classify themselves very strictly as a vegan. And again, this is a self-informed classification. There's no sort of police or anything like that, you know, kind of checking boxes. But that would be a lifestyle that seeks to minimise animal cruelty wherever possible. So say, for example, I would know people that would, you know, not go anywhere whereby animals are being utilised. So that could be, in a, you know, a circus in years gone by. That could be a zoo. Um, cosmetics. Exactly, across your cosmetics, animal products within your clothing as well. And it can be a very, very complex lifestyle. It can be very disruptive, say, for example, to a family environment. I think plant-based is, in my mind, exactly as you said, a very positive association of really just focusing on great, gorgeous, nutritious food. Veganism is an entire lifestyle. I for the most part, do live an entirely vegan lifestyle. Like I'm very, very conscious um, in terms of what I buy across my cosmetics, my products in my house. But that's a choice that I've made. I think it's really important to kind of express that no one should ever emphasise this is a choice anyone else should make. And I think one of the things that I try and do is empower people to set themselves up in their kitchens. You know, if you're going into a restaurant, how can you live this lifestyle, but most importantly, not be the friend that everyone wants to eliminate or argue with or anything <laughs> like that. Because as you said, there is that kind of previous association. You have been living this way for nearly nine years now. Yes. Why did you start originally? First and foremost, it was from an environmental um awareness and it was really interesting actually I was reading an article this morning that basically said the research shows that vegan diets result in 75% less climate heating emissions, water pollution and land use in diets which otherwise are um, involving it's tiny but 100 grams of meat a day so for me I think we all cannot help but look at the world and go oh my goodness, what is going on? For me, it was a very tangible way of saying, how can I day by day, meal by meal, even food shop by food shop, try and make a tiny difference? And then um, the more I kind of started to share, the more I became passionate about it, it evolved into a career where I am now. 
And I, I suppose, I mean, I bet you, you, Erica, will be like, that's the way to do it because to jump all in in January is tough going. So I have been eating less and less meat as as time has gone on. Yes. And we recently moved back in with my mum and for convenience, if she cooked shepherd's pie, I'd be like, yeah, look, I'm just going to eat it. If we made roast chicken, I'd say, look, I'm just going to eat it. And it, more and more, it kind of slipped back in into my life. And... This year, I was like, no, hang on a second. I, I made a decision. I watched the documentary. You'd love it, actually, Erica. Um, you are what you eat. There's a lot of talk about cheese, which I will get to in a minute because you seem to have missed cheese a lot. Um, and, and I just got further reinvigorated to say, no, hang on, that was a decision I made. So instead of making these rules, I now just try and when we're cooking something with meat for the rest of the family, it's not that hard for me to make something with beans and lentils on the side. I kind of convinced myself it was. Yeah. So I don't have that rigid, I will never eat this again, but I'm making more of an effort. And something I found is you do tend to eat a lot more vegetables. You do seem to get a lot more colour on your plate. You have to go a bit more imaginative and you have to bulk things out a little bit. And that becomes a bit of a joy. I'm always into nourishing and putting as much on the plate as possible. That's so lovely. Well, I think one of the things that you said that I can 100% relate to is, is that for me, when I adopted this lifestyle, I felt as if I was coming into an integrity within myself. I think a lot of how we grow up, whether it is in a school or a family system, is we kind of take on those around us as habits. And I think sometimes it's really nice to just check in with yourself and go, okay, how am I living? Is that what I want to do? You know, because again, exactly as you said, if everyone is kind of cooking for a family, it's easy to sort of go along with that. And for me, Again, I was 31. I watched a lot of animal welfare kind of documentaries. And there was also that kind of nice seesaw effect of it being balanced out with me suddenly seeing all of these recipes that looked so bright and so delicious. And a little bit of me went, okay, well, I've been Holly White, the daughter, partner, up to this stage, who do I actually want to be moving forward? And I felt as if I kind of came into this integrity within myself, whereby I had to stand up and have kind of boundaries around people and say, actually, that's not for me and I'm not going to go with the flow. And there is a little bit of for me, that kind of growing up that needed to happen. Um, and then nicely, though, it has now very much evolved. And exactly as you speak about in terms of bulking at dinners, the key thing that is so important for people is to make sure that they're integrating loads of vegan proteins and naturally things like, say, pulses, tofu, tempeh. Um, you know, they can be pretty bland. So it's really important to um, go down to the Asian market, spend 15 euros, buy every spice you can possibly find and just keep injecting flavour in wherever you go. Because definitely with, me with meat, I grew up in a household where on a Sunday there was a roast especially around Christmas everyone talks about the turkey like more than anything you know there's a reverence around meat people get very excited about it um, you have to put that kind of loving care and attention into your vegan protein sources because if you're not integrating them into your diet you're not going to feel satisfied people will often kind of say you know I I, I absolutely feel ravenous. I'm not satisfied on this diet so the key thing is is integrating the protein and also becoming familiar with how to use it what are some of the other common pitfalls that people will come up against? Um, I think it's really important, vegan or not, for people to make sure that they are eating a really balanced diet. One key supplement that vegans need to take is B12. So that can either be fortified into products. So there might be, say, vegan cheeses, plant-based milks. There's a product called nutritional yeast, which is fortified with B12, or else they can easily supplement it. Um, I donate blood and I get my... Uh, there you get your iron levels tested as well. Again, that's a really important one for people to just um, take care of. With a vegan lifestyle, it's not as easy to just pop into any convenience store or turn up at a friend's house and get a nutritionally balanced meal. So it is really important 
to just be aware, like, say, for example, I am certified in plant-based nutrition and I, I know how to look at a plate to make sure I'm having ample protein, carbs, healthy fats. So, you know, you have to be able to make sure that each meal that you're eating is as nutritious as possible, whereby in most convenience stores, you know, what you have with meat is you have all nine essential aminos in that. So within a vegan diet, you have to try and make sure that you're getting enough protein, whether it is through supplementing with protein powders or adding in um, things like hemp seeds onto dishes, which are a great form of vegan protein. And I think it's also you have to be conscious, and this is more like a social thing, of not being a burden on anyone else. And this is what I say to people, whether you are in a you know, a family environment or, you know, it's at work or anything like that, you have to learn how to cater to your needs. So say, for example, if I'm going to a friend's house, I will always offer to bring a dish. If I'm going to a restaurant, I will always ring them in advance um, and just let them know. So it's really important to just make sure that this is a lifestyle choice that you've made, but also how can you do it well? Mm, that's really good advice. Um, can we talk about cheese then, Erica? Because that's <gasps> Can we be talk? Something. I'm you interested to know, how did you get on with the vegan cheese I recommended to you? I actually don't want to talk about cheese, Claire, because I miss it so much. No, oh. vegan cheese is has been... Okay, I have to say something. I wanted to go into this month without eating too much um, processed foods. We're hearing a lot of UPFs, ultra-processed foods. We're hearing about how bad they are for our diet. We know this anyway, but unfortunately within this world of veganism and plant-based food, a lot of the meats and the chickens and the mints and whatever are, are made with a lot of um, processes and they are ultra-processed foods, including some of these cheeses, right? Like first ingredients are oils and water even. Um, so I didn't want to be eating a lot of processed food. I kind of wanted this to be a month of whole foods as much as I could. I'd say within day two, I was eating uh, <laughs> fake cheese or cheese with a Z. There's, they've been nice though. Some of them are nice. So like uh, there's a plant-based one from Philadelphia, which is made with oat and almond as opposed to oils as its first ingredient. Not that many ingredients in it. Lovely cream cheese. I think that was because that was what I'm used to going to for a snack is to spread something or butter a piece of toast or have a slice of cheese. The stuff that Holly's talking about is like, I don't know, things of, are made from gods. It's called nutritional yeast. I've, I realise the nickname for it now is Nooch. I'm in, I'm in, the, I'm in the game, um, which is these flakes that look a little bit like fish food, uh, sound mad, probably look mad to people. But once you taste them, when you haven't had Parmesan for a while, you're delighted. And um, there's a gorgeous company called Banana Melon down in Cork, who she makes this beautiful handmade cheeses. Now, they're not like one of the ones I tried was cheddar. It's not cheddar cheese. Like it's never going to be cheese that we know made with dairy or made with with animal milks. But it is it hits the spot in a different way. Um, it's really delicious. Uh, I'm not sure about the other plastic ones, you know, the the mainstream massively manufactured ones that aren't really with natural ingredients. Um, so the little handmade artisan cheeses is where I'm at these days. But also I'm kind of replacing that snacking with bean purees or hummuses and stuff that I make or that I buy as well. So are you counting down the days for January 31st <laughs> to go back to how you were or do you think that you will continue this um, thank you. That's a good question. I am, I'm only counting down the days. I'm not really counting down the days, to be honest. I have to be realistic. I love 
eggs. I miss them a lot. And actually, they're probably the biggest thing I miss. I don't miss meat that much. I was cooking Stella some chicken the other day. I was like, that does smell delicious. But I don't massively crave it or miss it. Um, I will not go back ever to the way I was. Certainly not with the amount of butter I eat. I love butter. And people know me for my recipes that can contain butter and cheese. But I'm trained from college and, and my mom who cooks French and Italian style you know that's what, that French particularly where we all are that's where we get our influence from we used to anyway it's changed now thankfully um, where butter was a massive part of our cookery so less meat will be bought for the house and it, it seldom was anyway but I think what I've really learned and especially I think everyone should watch that documentary you're talking about. The It's the twin experiment on Netflix. Um, you are what you eat. Really interesting. It's compared comparing um, American diets. So they are different. Their manufacturing and stuff of, of meat is different. But from now on, if I am getting meat or dairy, I am buying the best I can afford, which and I'll eat it less often. So always free range eggs or organic um, beef, talk to your butcher, you know, try if you can. Like I said, I, I, this is where I put my investment in my life. I am what I eat. So, And would you echo that then, Holly, you know, not jumping all in with all these rules and that you have to do this big restriction diet for the greater good of the planet. I mean, that's not the energy we want to be moving forward in. A hundred percent. Like for me, at the heart of it, veganism has kind of always been about kindness and, you know, kindness to ourselves. And for some people, they might really look forward to family roast dinner on a Sunday but what I would offer is maybe on a Monday what about a meat free Monday and one kind of nice easy swap that does exactly as Erica said if people are going to prioritise buying higher quality meats there is a cost incurred there so one thing that is great as a kind of a simple like for like swap is lentils gram per gram contain more protein than beef so they actually work really well even doing a 50-50 ratio say for example if someone was making a chilli a shepherdess pie um, a lentil bolognese you could actually um add in 50% lentils in place of mince as well. And to be honest, you're still getting the protein, but from a cost point of view, they're incredibly cost effective. So you can buy a 500 gram bag of um, green or black lentils for about two or three euros. And again, you can bulk stock up on that. So say, for example, if supermarkets ever have special offers or things like that, the great thing about a lot of plant-based proteins is the shelf life is really, really long. So um, definitely that would be an easy like for like swap. And then exactly as Erica said, when it comes time to buying your produce, if it is within your community, building relationships, asking questions, because it's only in us asking questions. Like I grew up not really knowing was there a difference between a free range chicken and a not. It's only once we ask the questions that I think our retailers will start to go, hang on, this is important to people. Let's make it clearer. Yeah, definitely. So where can people find you for more advice and recipes? Um, if they go to Instagram, I'm hollywhite.e or else I have a website holly.e and I have loads of classes and recipes and cooking information there. Yes, I'm in. I've joined the club. Paid Yay. myself. This is not an ad, but there's lots of brilliant information there. So that's well worth checking out. Likewise, your own Instagram, Erica, where people can follow you. What is it? Thank you. It's Erica Drum IE. E-R-I-C-A-D-R-U-M-I-E. Um, I've just posted a really nice bolognese. I call it Drunken Lentil Ragu. Yum. Okay, Amazing. ladies, thank you so much. Erica Drum and Holly White. Thank you. Kat. Until next time. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, Fiona Brennan, author of The Positive Habit, The Self-Love Habit and soon to be published Sleep Well is back to answer your life issues. If you have something going on in your life that you would like some advice on, Fiona has heard it all in her clinic. You can email anonymously. We will never read a name out. It's aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. The email address is always open and it's an interesting one this week, Fiona. 
It is, Claire. Thanks so much for having me and Happy New Year to all the amazing listeners. And to you. And may 2024 be very special for you. You've already a lot of plans afoot, don't you, to be spending a bit more time in Greece? That's right. Yeah, in the in the summer, hopefully we'll be going over for um, a period of time and we have our retreat and we have um, to be able to work from there as well, which is amazing. Um, yeah, so really exciting. Good stuff. Well, let's get into this one because I think this is really interesting, as I say, and, and people will identify with it because it's actually around friendship. So the email reads, any suggestions on how to prevent feelings of disconnection and feelings of disappointment in others, people that don't seem to see the need to keep in touch. For example, I was away over Christmas and a few people I would have thought would have texted to see how it went obviously are not bothered, even though they did inquire while I was away. Maybe I mistook something else for friendship. I felt disconnected when I came back, but I'm feeling better now that I am engaging in activities with others. Maybe this is my own fault too, as I'm not a great instigator myself, but I am social and I'm always happy to join in with others. Any advice? There's a lot going on here. There really is. And it kind of brings up the bigger question, I think, Claire, of the art of friendship. And it is something that is just, I think, so important to have in our lives is, I would say, like the research shows that it's between three to six really solid good friends. That's the kind of sweet spot. But personally, I think if you have one person in your life, right, outside of your family, that you can be completely authentic with, that you feel that you're not being judged, that you feel that you can express yourself, that you feel is really there for you. You know, that kind of thing that you know that if you pick up the phone, uh, no matter how busy they are, they're going to be there. And we tend to do that with family. You know, that's that's very much how a lot of families work. Not always, but, you know, um, the ideal. Um, but with friendships, that is something I think that is really worth cultivating. So this question brings up really, you know, how we communicate with our friends, what kind of expectations we have on the friendship, how valued we feel. And it seems to me this lovely lady is definitely, you know, feeling a sense of, of, she says, disappointment. So maybe there's expectations there that, that haven't been met or, and this is, I think, really important, they haven't been communicated. And communication in friendship is, again, pure gold. Because if you can express yourself without getting emotional or defensive about it, you're able to set really clear boundaries of what you expect and what you will bring to a friendship. I think that it's kind of sad because, again, you said I've seen it all in my clinic. I've seen a lot. That is true. And I've seen a lot of people really suffer when they are out of sync with their with their close friends, when there's some kind of falling out. It's it's like a little it's a grief. It's a heartbreak, um, especially when they've been very close and something happens. And often, like literally, I would say, Claire, nine times out of 10, it is a misunderstanding where someone has taken something personally and that was never the intention. Um, it can be a comment that was said, you know, flippantly. It can be something that they heard through somebody else. There's so many different ways that, that, that lines of communication get confused. And I think that, you know, when I'm talking about this kind of inner circle, if you like, the more that we can really dig deep and express ourselves, the more that that friendship is going to blossom and grow and be really a valuable source of happiness and well-being. 
Or do you think, and one of my favourite books last year was Friendaholic by Elizabeth Day, and she's fascinated by friendship. And she says, we have so much language around romantic relationships, but none around friendship. And, you know, often makeups or breakups in romantic relationships come with that communication. You sit down and you say, listen, I'd like more affection. I'd like more honesty. I'd like more fun. I'd like more spontaneity. Whatever it is you're saying is missing. Yeah. And either the person says, well, yeah, I think I can make that work. Or they say, no, I don't think I can. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a, sometimes a breakup inevitably. Yeah. But we don't feel the confidence to have these conversations with our friends. We just expect it to roll along and be natural. Do you think sometimes when you have these conversations with people, like in a romantic relationship, could there be friendship breakups? Could you realise the people that stick along and hear what you have to say and, you know, either take it on board Mm. or the people that can't? Are they the ones that sort of perhaps need to be stepped away from a little? I think it's a bit of both. And to be honest, I'd say it's less likely that breakups will happen when those conversations are held, if you like, because... Often, like when when you express yourself from your heart and you say, do you know what? I was really disappointed, like in the case of this question here, I was disappointed that you didn't um, check in to see how I was. Right. If that can be expressed in a way that isn't, as I say, look, you know, without any confrontation, without any sense of conflict, but just saying this is this is something that um, I suppose I need. And. Even before you get to that stage, I would say, Claire, it's really important that you look at your own like what's actually going on inside of you, this feeling of disconnection, for example. Is there a disconnect within yourself? And this listener, she sounds like she's actually got really good self-awareness because she says that, you know, maybe it's my fault too, right? So we've got to sort of ask ourselves these questions. We've got to say, well, you know, have I been, maybe I wasn't great at asking how they were when they went off on their holiday and maybe I didn't check in when they got back or who knows? So it's taking accountability and often what really can irk us about other people and our friends is something that we have dormant in ourselves. It's that shadow self, if you like, in in Jungian um, psychology. But with this listener, she does seem to have that awareness. And I think that's really important and really powerful. So it's using that awareness to communicate more clearly. Um, I haven't read that book, but it sounds really good. And I think this whole area of friendships is one, yeah, that people do need. We need more guidance. We need more um, sort of help in how to navigate it and how to, I think, really value our friends, that that has to be such a a conscious effort to to put in place and to know who those people are and then to really um, be aware of how you devote yourself to those people. And also then when things don't go exactly smoothly or you do feel let down, to be able to give a little bit of leeway for that as well, because often there's so many things going on in a person's life. And again, nine times out of 10, it's not to do with you, you know, so that when you take something personally, you have you're, you're jeopardising potentially a really um, beautiful relationship. Yeah, because that's something that jumped out at me, the uh, the sentence about they didn't text to say how I got on when I got back, but they did text when I was there. Yes. And I, and I thought, you know, that does sound like an interested friend. It, it does. Says, I hope you're having a good time. Yeah. And OK, something was missing. But it's that sort of self-worth piece, isn't it? To not be doubting ourselves and imagine that just because somebody doesn't text doesn't mean that they don't care. Why not yeah. instigate, say, will we meet for a coffee and 
bore them to tears with your holiday snaps then? A hundred percent, Claire. Exactly. It's that sense of not jumping to that conclusion, if you like, that maybe they are just busy. And, you know, the fact that they have shown interest, it's like that 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 shows they are, as you say, an uh, invested friend. And then again, it's like, you know, people go through so many different things at different stages in their lives. So we've all been there like when, you know, it might occur to you, oh my goodness, I missed that. Like, how did I miss that? And we can be really hard on ourselves. And it's how that's communicated. You know, it's like, is is the friend genuinely sort of saying, oh, I'm so sorry I missed your birthday or I forgot to text over, you know, maybe your husband was going in for, you know, the, the different things in life. What's really important is that there's a sense of, of uh, perspective given and saying, well, look, no, that's fine. Don't worry. We all we all have a lot of things going on. And I think that, you know, having said all that, Claire, I do think that friendship is a two way street, that it needs to work both ways. There often is people who are generally the, the instigator in friendships. I don't know if you notice this yourself, but in groups, there'll be somebody who the is the organiser. The organiser. Now, I am that person, right? And I'm aware of that. So it's kind of like if you have that awareness and you're, you know, well, then the expectation is different. You're not sort of like disappointed when people don't necessarily, you know, instigate. But what you do want is people to reciprocate. So, for example, if um, in that case, there's somebody who's consistently sending messages, do you want to go for lunch? Do you want to, you know, go to the cinema, whatever it might be? And nothing's coming back. Well, then that's 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 a problem, right? But if someone is very much responsive and, oh, thank you so much and is aware you're so good, you always do this. I really appreciate it. It means so much to me. But then we've got a different kind of um, relationship going on. There's an acknowledgement of that. So I think it's like using your own judgment, using your own intuition, having your own boundaries is really, really important. So hopefully that that makes sense. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been really surprised at how friendships evolve and change over time. Yeah. It's not as easy as the 20s where you all rocked into the same pub. They take a bit more work as time goes on and people change and people evolve. It is a tricky area, but communication is key. I took that as your main piece of advice. People can find you at underscore positive underscore habit on Instagram and do keep an eye out for Sleep Well being published in April. Will you come in and tell us all about it? I will. And just to say, if I could, I've got an amazing pre-order competition going on and I have some great prizes from the Sleep Shop and beautiful um, pyjamas from Cotton Collection. Uh, So that's worth over €600. So if you are considering improving your sleep, then I would definitely pre-order the book. Nice. Fiona Brennan, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, Francis Fitzgerald has had an incredible political career, former Minister for Justice, former Taunishta, and though she recently announced she will end her time as MEP this year, she is certainly not done yet and has been working on the EU Directive on Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence. She joins me in studio now. Francis, you're very welcome. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Now, we met at a launch a few weeks back and you said, I'd love to come in and talk about the true cost of domestic violence. And I'd like to start there, if we may. There's a lot for us to get into. And I know there's been a big development in your directive this week. But can we start there? Because I think people get the emotional toll that it must take. But I don't know if they know the statistics that you're going to give us. I know. People think about domestic violence and violence against women and, you know, 
Claire, it amazes me it's not absolutely top of the agenda because it has so many implications for society, for individual women, for families, for community. I mean, the physical and emotional costs, psychological costs you've talked about, uh, the cost in the criminal justice services, the health services. Uh, you're going to be amazed at these figures because the estimated cost of violence across the EU is $366 billion a year. That was the amount in 2019, the latest figures we have. Violence against women makes up $289 billion of this cost. Intimate partner violence makes up $174 billion. And intimate partner violence against women makes up $151 billion of these costs. So you're talking extraordinary cost to society. You know, extraordinary cost to individuals, but extraordinary cost to society. And of course, the bigger point as well is that inequality, where women aren't getting the same opportunities as men, that's also a huge cost to society economically. And we're beginning to talk more about the economic costs. You know, people always said before, it's the right thing to do. You know, it's a moral issue. It's a values issue. But actually, equality is also an economic issue. And I think it's just yet another perspective on the costs of inequality, whether it's violence or whether it's lack of opportunity. Like I was at a conference in New York last year on the UN Commission on Women, where it's quite clear the new tech industries, AI, uh, modern technology. In fact, we're replicating some of the equalities around women. We have the idea, you know, women are involved in all these industries, actually, particularly in the global south. We're, you know, replicating the same inequalities uh, around digital and AI in the future. And that's where 79% of the jobs are going to be. So it's very interesting to look at all of these. Long answers, sorry, Claire. It's interesting to look at this issue from an economic perspective. And look, they're going to be long answers. This is a huge topic. And I feel like that cost, that financial cost without any real change, because we keep getting a big swell of interest. I know we had the anniversary of Ashling Murphy's death recently, and that caused a massive outcry from people. And then you wonder, does anything really change? Does anything really happen? The conversation goes, yes. but what actually changes? Well, I suppose when I started 13, 30 years ago, when I was chair of the Women's Council, and we were working on violence against women, I guess I thought it was going to just stop as people got educated, as men were better educated, as you got more equality, you know, between the sexes. I kind of thought it's going to go down. Actually, we live in a world where it's increasing with, you know, pornography, uh, in wars, um, just generally. I mean, that's what is actually happening. But of course, there are improvements as well. Our awareness is way better. Women are more inclined now to be and are more able to take action if they find themselves in these situations. There's more services. But you're right, Claire, there is a lot more to do. It's unfinished business like our democracy. Um, a lot more to do uh, to really come to terms with this. And this is where legislation plays a role. Tell us a bit about this EU directive that you've been yeah. working on. Well, look, we all have, uh, in Ireland, actually, we have very good national strategy. I did the second national strategy on domestic violence and gender-based violence. Helen McEntee did the third. And the NGOs are very active in this area. As we know, awareness raising is really good. There's more services. We need more shelters, although it's the perpetrators who should leave home, not the women and children. But that's another story. That's where we need to be. Um, so, I mean, a lot is done at national level, but not in every country. So in the directive, first time we've ever had a directive is something that every member state has to implement. It's a minimum standard. We now have a directive on violence against women. We're working on it for the first time ever, which is kind of interesting at European level. 
So it's going to deal with issues, you know, obligations on member states and sanctions, prevention, protection, prosecution, all of these areas in, in, in relation to violence. And we're going to deal making uh, female genital mutilation a criminal offence, for example. We're dealing with cyber violence. That includes cyber flashing, cyber harassment, share, uh, sending intimate images, you know, without permission. All of these cyber crimes, they're not legislated for in most European countries, not comprehensively anyway. And we also wanted to have rape in there uh, and with the definition of consent. You know, yes means yes, that consent is voluntary given. And in the countries where they have that, you get more prosecutions and it's easier for victims to come forward because with the old definitions about just physical force, well, you've got to prove you really resisted and women aren't always able to, you know, uh, for a whole range of reasons, as we know. Uh, so, Anyway, the council, uh, France and Germany, we needed them to agree to this. And the council is the heads of government across Europe. They didn't agree uh, to put rape in because for different reasons, legal, uh, cultural, I would say. Some countries haven't got consent in their legislation and don't want it. So we have a directive, but they want rape uh, as a criminal offence left to the member states. That's really where we've ended up. So this week I've said, look, we're not going to get uh, rape into this directive. And, you know, the average person says, what? I, I it, it just, I can't get my head around it. And, you know, obviously it was announced yesterday and I've been reading up on it. And it, there, it doesn't make any sense. Do you think it's in part because it's a domestic situation? Do you think that's the cultural that's understanding? That's been an issue in, in relation to this. I think there's also probably a perception that if you put consent in, you know, gosh, you know, every woman's going to be out there saying I didn't actually consent. I mean, it's stereotype thinking, but it, primarily they're saying it's legal. But, you know, legal covers a lot of issues. You can use legal as an excuse sometimes. It's a, it's a technical legal approach to it that says criminal law. Now, it's always been difficult. In fairness, it's always been difficult for the EU in relation to criminal law. We do tend to leave criminal law uh, to member states. But what you have here, uh, you know, I think you have an overwhelming case that rape is actually effectively a euro crime, although technically it's not because that requires unanimity from all the member states and you'd never get that with Hungary. So, I mean, effectively we made the case that rape is sexual exploitation and that's one of the grounds under the treaty where the EU can act in along with trafficking and child sex abuse. So, I mean, look, it's a decision, isn't it? I think more member states could have supported it, but France particularly does not have legislation on consent and they would not agree until they had their own legislation to make it an EU crime and put it in this directive, which I think is a dreadful failure. I think we look back in 10 years and say, you know, isn't that unbelievable? Because it will it will happen. Because I mentioned in in the fight for equality and against violence against women, legislation plays a really key role because it sends out a message. Ah, it does, of course. Yes. So this not being included sends out a message. Of course it sends out a message and it also sends out a message about the understanding of the heads of government around Europe of the rape issue, if you ask me. Uh, but in fairness, every member state does have legislation on rape. It varies in, if you like, quality and so on. But every member state does have some legislation on rape. We wanted to have the same standard. So if you're travelling across Europe and you're, you know, we, we free movement now, people work and travel around different countries, that you'd have the same levels of protection for women in all these areas of sexual crime and violence. You announced that you won't be, you'll be stepping down as MEP. Does this taint this in any way? 
Oh no, it's there's no connection at all. But, but I mean, did you want this to all be oh sorry. finished and completed in the way that you intended it? I mean, is there any room for that in politics? I suppose well, nothing you do is your certain. Best. You do your best. I mean, this is primarily the the heads of government just won't agree it. I mean, we've got a really successful report from Parliament that's very comprehensive, which I led along with the. A Swedish colleague, actually, from the Socialist Party, Evan Inser, we worked to get this really good report from Parliament the Commission wanted. But it has given me a real, yet again, an insight into the state of equality across Europe and attitudes and, you know, how much unfinished business there is in relation to equality. Because sometimes you get the feeling, you know, always the feminists in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, but look, plenty of work to do still. And it's really given me a... It's not even a hard lesson, you know. I'm never really surprised at how much there is to do still. But um, yeah, I would have liked to have had it, but it shows me what needs to be done now in terms of campaigning. We have to work to make rape a euro crime and we have to focus on this resistance. That's the next step and see if we can get enough to make the directive happen. And I'm not even sure I'll get the support or that we will get the support of all the groups in the European Parliament for what's left in the directive. Yeah, where we do we do, really? Where do we stand now? We're negotiating still for the next couple of weeks. I hope that we can make the directive much stronger in a number of areas and that we can get in a very strong, if you like, section on prevention in relation to rape. There's still a lot of work governments can do in relation to public awareness campaigns and consent. They've started it in the universities here. There's a lot of learning to do. I think sex education's key. And we've had a very bad record on that. So, by the way, have many European countries. It's quite interesting. Still a lot of work to be done and I suppose you have to make peace with that sometimes, don't you? Oh, totally. I mean, you can't get you can't get sort of obsessed with that because there's an awful lot of good things in relation to what's happened in Ireland. Ireland is very progressive. Um, there's been huge progress for women, for uh, LGBTQI plus community. I did the legislation uh, for marriage equality. I did the legislation for the children's referendum. I mean, look, we've improved. There's so much has happened in Ireland. It's a much more progressive country. And actually, what I see in Europe is a lot of other countries have a much more work to do than we do, if you could ever say that without, you know, exaggeration. How did you know it was time to step down from your work with the European Parliament? I'm not sure I did. <laughs> it's a process. I mean, it's a very difficult decision to say you're potentially, you know, um, uh, electoral politics has been my life, even though I never set out thinking I would be in politics, let alone be a minister. I genuinely didn't. I mean, I often joke that I didn't wake up at 15 like Leo and want to be prime minister, you know, or a Taoiseach. And um, that's that's really only a joke about Leo, but um, people think I'm criticising him. I'm not. But, you know, men tend to be sort of a bit more linear in their, their ambitions. I, I was a social worker for 20 years and I had three children and... Uh, they were my focus and uh, my working part-time as a social worker. And I kind of got in, probably through equality, into politics. How did I make the decision? With difficulty, actually. I mean, this is not a, this was not an easy decision. Um, discussion with my family, discussion with friends, with, you know, thinking it through. What did I want to do for the next five years? Did I want to continue back and forth to Europe? And I, I think I came to the conclusion I want to focus my work in Ireland, whatever that shape that work takes in the next while. Um, and I had been very, had a very difficult time in 2017, got a fabulous vote in 2019 from the people of Dublin and then really have enjoyed and I'm a big fan of Europe, despite what I've been telling you about the directive. I really am a fan because I think we need the European lens. We need a stronger Europe. 
we need a Europe that has a better, stronger place in the world because the European values, in my view, are the best. You know, the respect for the rule of law, respecting the individual and so on, freedom of the press. Yeah, well, we certainly need people coming together rather than moving apart. Um, That's certainly for sure. And what about over the years then? How did you manage a a work-life balance or is that possible through ministerial roles? Or do you even believe in the term? To be honest with you... um, my uh, my children, I mean, they were adults when I was a, a minister and I'm very glad that they were, you know, they had grown up when I became a minister. Um, I did almost seven years as a minister. It's Minister for Justice is 24 hours. I mean, it's morning, noon and night. It's incredibly demanding. I was Minister for Children as well and then Minister for Business. And um, I was, in retrospect, you know, when you go into politics, when I actually was in politics, there was a, a period at one stage where I thought I might be a Minister for State and I wasn't. So I was a backbencher for 11 years, a long time. A lot of people now expect to be ministers in day one. Um, and I enjoyed it. I mean, I just considered it a fantastic honour. I still remember the feeling walking into Leinster House and saying, my God. And then the people who support you, your staff, uh, the teams of people who go out and canvass. It's, it's a very rare opportunity, really. And it's very exciting, very interesting. Now, it has dreadful days as well, <laughs> some really dreadful days. But um, it, it's, a, it's a great honour and you can change and you can influence things. So I'm a big believer in the political process, you know. And that's so. what I always think when it comes to work-life balance. If your work is something you really are passionate yes. about, then that it, that is just your life. Your work is your life. Supports, uh, Claire. You know, I mean, I always had a lot of childcare support. That's really important. My my, When I went into politics, I had three children under 10, but I lived in Dublin. I lived close to the Dáil. I had good supports. You know, I had family who supported me, were happy to see me, you know, doing my work. Um, and uh, But the childcare is critical, of course. But I'd had many a day when I was running out to A&E's, you know, when something happened with one of the kids and, you know, going to... Um, school report meetings and, you know, all the usual things you do as a parent. And there were times when, you know, it it just felt quite hard to, and there's, you know, you don't want to miss anything with your children. And occasionally, you you know, you make decisions, you know, if anything, looking back, I'd say there's some meetings I could have avoided. And you <laughs> like know, all of us. In the equality conversation, it often gets said that we shouldn't be asking women about work-life balance or how do you juggle it all. But I personally, as a women's liver myself, I don't think the answer is not ask women. I think we should start asking men the same question. Of course. Because it is a reality. We're of all course. trying to manage whether you've kids or not, your personal life and your professional life and making it all work. Absolutely. And I mean, it isn't always easy, but I think it is possible. I mean, if anything, and it's probably a slightly controversial thing to say, but if anything, I'd like to see more younger parents, you know, having the courage at this stage to know that they can get back into work if they want to take some time out with their children, to have that confidence. But I think this incredible pressure, particularly Mm -hmm. on women, you know, you're going to lose out on your career trajectory if you opt out. I mean, I did opt out. I worked part time. I worked, you know, mornings. I worked afternoons. I did some evening lecturing. I did all sorts of things that, you know, I worked on the Women's Council. That was voluntary. But I think now many young women and then, of course, the fertility issues come into play because people are so nervous about the career and then they need the money for mortgages. These are such difficult choices for younger women now. And many couples are ending up with huge fertility issues because they delay and delay for the kind of reasons I'm saying. And then that becomes a whole, you know, absolute obsession and difficulty. 
So my heart goes out to them because I think, you know, I think women are find women particularly are finding themselves in this very difficult position, and it's hard for younger women to say to take that space. It's my experience of talking to younger women now. So how will your new chapter look? I mean, I presume you're not hanging up all political involvement or are you? No, I'm not. No, I'll stay involved politically. I intend to stay involved. I'll stay involved um, and on advocating on the various issues. As we were talking earlier, there's a lot of work to do. Um, I haven't quite figured out the entire shape of it yet, but um, I mean, I will have yeah, I will have, I'd be less pressurised. So I look carefully at kind of the options that come up and uh, I'll focus on the areas that have been of interest to me all my life. And I, the ones I've done in the in the parliament, like ethical business is of huge interest to me now because businesses now are, there's more pressure on business to have kind of corporate, you know, if you like, corporate due diligence. We've just passed some laws on that or in the middle of passing them. Uh, trade agreements, having trade agreements, you know, that are more ethically and environmentally based. So I've learned an awful lot and I'll, I'll contribute wherever the opportunities open up over the next while and I'll stay involved politically with Fine Gael. Well, it seems like you seeing what happens next has worked out very well so far. So I wish you the very best, particularly with this EU directive and getting it over the line for violence against women. Frances Fitzgerald, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and Hugo De Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.